Christmas 1996 is just five days away, and in Oklahoma City, a desperate mom's on the hunt in Toys R Us. She hurries down the pink Barbie aisle, but the doll her daughter wants more than anything isn't there. She stops a store assistant. Excuse me, uh, do you have any holiday Barbies? You know, the one with the burgundy coat and white fur hat? Sorry, ma'am. They sold out last week. We won't be getting any more. Uh, Any idea where I can get one? Sorry, those ones disappear the minute they go on the shelves. He's right. These limited edition Christmas Barbies are hot. Mattel made two million this year and they sold out in just a few weeks. And those sales figures have emboldened Mattel CEO Jill Barad. The following spring, she meets with a holiday Barbie team in Mattel's LA headquarters. The big retailers say they can sell even more holiday Barbies, so I want us to make three million this year. The Barbie team thinks that's a bad idea, but challenging Barad isn't wise either. They reckon it's no coincidence that the people who blocked her path to the top are no longer around. Eventually, one executive finds the courage to push back. The retailers are wrong. Their figures are distorted by the collectors and scalpers who buy multiple dolls. Holiday Barbie works because it's collectible. Make too many, and it'll lose its cachet. Barad frowns. Do not underestimate the power of Barbie. We're doing this. But the executive is right. That Christmas, Holiday Barbie doesn't sell out. Instead, retailers are swamped with unsold brunette Barbies in red and white gowns. By spring, the doll that once cost $100 or more is being hawked for just $30 on the home shopping network. With their shelves still packed with leftover holiday Barbies, retailers not only cut back on ordering specialty Barbies, but on run-of-the-mill ones, too. By fall 1998, Mattel's sales are half a billion dollars below target, and its stock price is tanking. So, Barad pulls a rabbit out of the hat. To mollify upset investors, she announces that Mattel is joining the digital revolution by buying educational software giant The Learning Company for more than $3 billion. The Learning Company is a high-flying tech stock. In less than a decade, it's gone from operating out of a Toronto basement to software giant status. It's home to big-name computer games like Reader Rabbit, Myst, and The Oregon Trail. But in its rush to buy The Learning Company and regain Wall Street's favor, Mattel's not looked beyond the software giant's glossy exterior. And that oversight is going to cost Mattel and Barad dearly. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. 
Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. On our last episode, Hasbro narrowly escaped a hostile takeover by Mattel. But now the two rivals face a new threat, the digital age. With kids switching from plastic playthings to screen-based entertainment, the titans of toys need new ways to capture kids' imaginations. Mattel thinks it's joined the tech fast track by buying the learning company. But it's in for a nasty surprise. This is Episode 6 of Hasbro vs. Mattel, Screen Dreams. It's February 2000, and in the offices of a Wall Street investment bank, Mattel is holding a board meeting. With him is a balding man with gray stubble, video game industry veteran Bernie Stolar. A few years back, he helped launch Sony's PlayStation video game console in America. Now... He's about to give Mattel's board a crucial presentation. To Stolar, the board members look like deer caught in the headlights. A year ago, they approved the multi-billion dollar buyout of the learning company. They thought they had bought a golden goose. Instead, they got a turkey. The learning company is losing so much money, it's obliterated Mattel's profits and crashed its share price. So the board asked Stolar to assess the situation. Now... He's ready to deliver the bad news. You won't like this. Uh, the learning company, it's junk. It's losing a million dollars every day. It's overloaded with debt. It's invested little in creating new products, and its existing brands are outdated and in steep decline. Restructuring the company will take, well, at least two years and it'll cost up to $100 million. Stolar lets the news settle, and then continues. My advice? Get rid of it. Give it away if you must. The board's hopes for a silver lining are shattered, and they also know someone must take the fall for this mess. All eyes in the room turn to Mattel CEO Jill Barad. She's one of just four female Fortune 500 CEOs. She was instrumental in making Barbie a billion-dollar-a-year toy. But there's no saving her now. Barad knows it, too. After striking a $50 million severance package, she resigns. A few months later, Mattel hands the learning company to a venture capital group for next to nothing. But Mattel's rocky start to the new century is far from over. 
It's August 2000, and in Mattel's parking lot, Barbie clothes designer Carter Bryant is on edge. He scans the cars and sees the woman he's looking for. Her name is Veronica Marlowe, and she used to work with him at Mattel. But now she's an independent consultant. After spotting her sitting in her car, he makes sure no one's around, knocks on the window, and gets into the passenger seat. Hi, Veronica. Sorry to make you meet me here. Are you okay? You seem worried. What what is this all about? You remember my leave of absence a while back? Sure. Well, I stayed with my parents in Missouri, and when I was there, I saw these really cool-looking high school girls walking down the street. I was inspired by them, and so I did sketches of a doll line based on them. I brought them to show you. And if you like them, well, can you help me find someone to buy the rights? Okay, but... Why come to me? Why not show Mattel? You know what they're like. They just want the same old, safe, pretty Barbie dresses. I don't trust them to do my ideas justice. Bryant hands his sketchbook to Marlowe. Inside are drawings of sassy, multi-ethnic teen dolls with rainbow-colored hair, edgy clothes, and a strong girl power vibe. Above them are the words, Meet the Brats. That's Brats spelled with a Z for extra street cred. Wow, they are cool. I like the large heads. Reminds me of anime, which is definitely on trend. I'll show them around, see who bites. A few days later, Marlo calls Bryant. She's arranged a meeting with Isaac Larian, the Iranian co-founder of MGA Entertainment. MGA is a small Californian toy maker, a company that's never had a hit toy in mainly survives by distributing video games. Bryant arrives at Larian's office with a prototype Bratz. It's a Frankenstein's monster of a doll, pieced together from discarded Barbie parts. It's dressed in homemade clothes and an oversized pair of Ken boots. Larian is not impressed. Oof, that's ugly. Ugly and, uh, ugly and weird. Just then, Larian's 12-year-old daughter enters the office. She spots the doll and rushes over. Oh, my God, that is so cool. Can I have this? Suddenly, Larian's doubt vanishes. Seems like I'm wrong. She knows best. It's brilliant. Larian offers Bryant a deal. And in 2001, the Brats arrive. Passion for fashion. Passion for fashion. Passion for fashion. MGA pushes Bratz as the anti-Barbie. Dolls with different skin tones, almond-shaped eyes, varied body shapes, and plenty of street cred. And instead of pretty gowns, they come dressed in mix-and-match fashions. Midriff exposing tube tops, aqua-colored platform heels, knit caps, and cargo pants. But Larian knows beating Barbie will be an uphill battle. So... He licenses the Bratz brand far and wide. Soon, the Bratz logo is turning up on preteen clothes, bags, cosmetics, and shoes. The flood of merchandise boosts the brand's name recognition and, with it, sales of the dolls. By 2003, Barbie's facing the fight of her life. Bratz are selling fast and threatening to end Barbie's long reign as the queen of dolls. 
Inside Mattel, there is panic. For a moment, it looks like Barbie's days are numbered. But then, Mattel CEO Robert Eckert finds a letter waiting for him on his desk. He opens the letter and skims it, then carefully rereads it again. He's shocked. The anonymous letter identifies former Mattel designer Carter Bryant as the creator of Bratz. And not only that, it also reveals he was working for Mattel when he sold the rights to MGA. Holy smokes! The information's dynamite. Mattel's employment contract gives the company ownership of any toys its staff creates. And that means Mattel, not MGA, should own Bratz. Eckert smiles. Mattel might not be able to stop Bratz in the marketplace. But now, it has what it needs to sue them out of existence. While Mattel battles Bratz, Hasbro is facing an altogether different challenge. In recent years, the Rhode Island company is focused on making toys based on movies. It's a successful strategy, but as a result, Hasbro's neglected its own toy brands and now they badly need attention. The action figure line Transformers is typical. It used to earn Hasbro hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Now, Transformers barely makes 30 million. It's the same story with G.I. Joe and My Little Pony. Hasbro toy chief Brian Goldner wants to change that. He's developing a plan part inspired by the movie Toy Story. When that film came out, it gave Mr. Potato Head a major sales boost. So why not replicate that success by creating movies about other Hasbro toys? But for that plan to work, he needs to get Hollywood on board. Goldner calls movie producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura to float the idea. I heard that you want to do a film about military technology. Yeah, that, that's true. Great, great. Well, how about you make it a G.I. Joe movie? Yeah. Mm, not grabbing me. No studio will want to make a feature-length toy commercial. I get that. But that's not what I'm after. I'll give you whatever creative latitude you need to make a great movie using our brand. After a few more conversations, De Bonaventura bites. He teams up with fellow producer Don Murphy. Together, they prepare a pitch, hoping to persuade a major Hollywood studio to bankroll the movie. The project gets off to a strong start. Within a few months, they've got a draft script and interest from Sony's movie studio. But then comes a curveball. The United States invades Iraq. With disturbing images of war appearing on TV screens, the pair's excitement about G.I. Joe is replaced by a definite sense of unease. Feeling the time's no longer right for a war movie based on a toy, Murphy calls Hasbro's film licensing chief to break the news. We're parking the G.I. Joe movie because of Iraq. We can revisit it another time, maybe. Okay, well, what else could we use for a movie? Mm, how about Transformers? A few months later, Murphy is touring Hollywood, trying to sell his vision 
a big-budget live-action Transformers movie. The reaction from one of Paramount Pictures' executives he meets is typical. Seriously, Transformers? As in the toys? From the 80s? I know, I know, they're before my time too, but listen. I went to Comic-Con, and man, you should see how much love and nostalgia people still have for Transformers. It's crazy, man. This could be huge. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm passing. The pitches to the studios go nowhere. No one will touch Transformers. But then, Murphy gets a call. It's Paramount. We've changed our minds. We want Transformers. Oh, that, that's great. Uh, but what's changed? And some of our younger executives who grew up with Transformers heard I rejected Transformers and took me to task. I guess you were right. That generation still loves the brand. Paramount isn't the only studio to change its mind. Soon there's a Hollywood bidding war as studios jostle to bring Transformers to the big screen. Eventually... Paramount and DreamWorks get the deal, and in July 2007, the first Transformers movie arrives. My name is Optimus Prime. We are autonomous robotic organisms from the planet Cybertron. But you can call us Autobots for short. Autobots. The film is an explosive, globe-trotting CGI extravaganza. The movie features bulked-up robots the size of buildings who get into spectacular fights and can morph into muscle cars for high-octane car chases. In its opening weekend, movie theaters are packed with nostalgic dads introducing their sons to the toy of their youth. The movie makes more than $800 million, spawns a major film franchise, and, most importantly for Hasbro, it sends sales of Transformers toys through the roof. Soon, Hasbro's replicating the strategy with G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, and more. By the time toy chief Brian Goldner becomes Hasbro's CEO in 2008, the company's opening its own film and TV studio. But while Hasbro's been making waves in Hollywood, Mattel's busy battling the brats in court. And now, the doll is about to face its final judgment. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com slash support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov.
It's April 21st, 2011, and in a California courtroom, the jury is ready to give its verdict. For years, MGA and Mattel have been fighting in court for control of brats. Today, these jurors will decide their fate. Has the jury reached a unanimous verdict? We have, Your Honor. MGA co-founder Isaac Larry intenses, as does Mattel CEO Robert Eckert. Eckert's the man who started this multi-million dollar legal firefight, and he's expecting victory. The judge nods. And what is that verdict? The warring CEOs hold their breath. The moment has come. Shortly after, Larian steps out of the courtroom into the Californian sunshine. He feels lighter. He barely believes it. But he's won. The jurors confirmed MGA, not Mattel, is the rightful owner of Bratz. What's more, they also ordered Mattel to pay more than $100 million in damages. But it's a Pyrrhic victory. In 2005, Bratz briefly dethroned Barbie as the world's best-selling dolls. But the legal clashes have taken a steady toll. MGA's been too busy fighting Mattel in court to focus on updating the doll. Now, the dolls that once made Larian's company a billion dollars a year barely rake in 40 million. Larian may have won in court, but he also knows brats are over. Still, brats did show that Barbie's dominance is no longer a given. And there's a new threat, too. Disney's Princess Doll line, which includes Magic Kingdom superstars like Cinderella, Jasmine, and Snow White. These regal dolls are hugely popular, and unlike Barbie, their sales are rising. Not that Mattel's too worried. After all, it makes those Disney Princess dolls, so even as Barbie slips, those popular princesses more than compensate. But Mattel's fairy tale romance with Disney is about to turn grim. It's 2013, and a group of Disney executives is visiting Hasbro in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Hasbro makes Star Wars toys for Disney, and the team from the Magic Kingdom wants to know how kids feel about the franchise. A Hasbro researcher talks the Disney team through the toy makers' latest findings. What's really clear to us is that Star Wars resonates with kids today because dads love the brand. They pass that love on to their children. Same thing happens with sports teams. When the researcher finishes his talk, a Disney executive wants to know something else. I know today's all about boys and Star Wars, but what's your research telling you about girls? Okay, one standout is that girls are not as into clothes as they once were. Our research suggests girls prefer brands about friendship and kindness. Hasbro doesn't know it yet, but Disney's testing the waters. He is starting to think Mattel isn't the right home for their princess dolls. Mattel spending more and more time trying to halt the slide in Barbie sales. And Disney feels like its dolls are becoming an afterthought. There's another problem, too. A new line of teenage goth dolls from Mattel called Ever After High. Welcome to Ever After High. 
Ever After High, the school for the teenage sons and daughters of famous fairy tale characters. Apple White, daughter of Snow White. Raven Queen, daughter of the Evil Queen. Madeline Hatter, daughter of the Mad Hatter. Mattel's Ever After High dolls might be goths who wear thick black eyeliner, but when Disney looks at them, it sees fairy tale princesses. And as far as Disney's concerned, princesses are its territory. From Disney's perspective, Mattel's now directly competing with its princess dolls. And it's not going to stand for that. So now, the Magic Kingdom's hoping Hasbro might prove a more hospitable castle for its princesses. And Mattel's error couldn't have come at a worse time, because Disney's about to introduce its most popular princess yet. Summer in the city of Arendelle. It couldn't be warmer. It couldn't be sunnier. But that's about to change forever. Arendelle. It's completely frozen. Cold, 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 cold. She's called Elsa, and the name of her movie is Frozen. Frozen is a phenomenon. It grosses more than a billion dollars at the box office and becomes the biggest animated movie of all time. Naturally, Frozen sends sales of Disney princess dolls soaring. Sales that Disney is now seriously considering handing to Mattel's arch enemy. In early 2014, Disney invites Hasbro to Burbank, California. It wants Hasbro to make its pitch for the Disney princess rights. It's Hasbro CEO Brian Goldner's moment to shine. And there's a lot at stake. Thanks to Frozen, the annual sales of Disney princess dolls are pushing half a billion dollars. Goldner leads the pitch. Our insights show that girls see princesses in much the same way as boys see superheroes. And that means girls are drawn to different characters for different reasons. Those reasons might be Ariel's mermaid tale, Merida's archery skills, or Elsa's ability to conjure snow. Goldner takes a sip of water and then continues. What's missing from Mattel's marketing of your dolls is anything highlighting the individual appeal of each princess. Now, if we had the Disney princess line, we would draw that out. For example, Tiana from The Princess and the Frog. She's an amazing cook. We can tap into that. The Disney team loves the Tiana example. It shows Disney that Hasbro's thinking about its lesser-known princesses, too. In contrast, Mattel's focused its energies on the big league princesses. Cinderella, the Little Mermaid, Snow White. When the Hasbro team finishes, the Disney executives applaud. Goldner smiles. That has got to be a good sign. By the time Mattel realizes it's about to lose its lucrative Disney princess line, it's too late to win them back. In September 2014, Disney gives Hasbro the rights. Now, Mattel desperately needs Barbie to make a comeback. So it opts for radical action. For decades, Barbie's been criticized for her impossibly small waist, distractingly long legs, and well-endowed breasts. Critics say these proportions give little girls an unrealistic idea of what a woman's body should look like. Now, Mattel's addressing those complaints head-on. 
In January 2016, as the first Hasbro Disney princess dolls reach shores, Mattel unveils the biggest change in Barbie's 57-year history. For generations, Barbie dolls have presented an image of perfect beauty, and for many, that's exactly the problem. But now, as NBC's Erica Hill tells us, Barbie is getting a whole new look. Mattel's new Barbies embrace diversity. Barbies with new facial structures, new skin tones, new hair textures, and a choice of four body shapes. Original, petite, curvy, and tall. Mattel's decision to finally get with the times and embrace a more inclusive vision of beauty with Barbie generates tons of positive publicity. It makes the TV news, the front cover of Time magazine, and even gets a thumbs up from Ellen DeGeneres. But the positive welcome doesn't result in the brand resurrection Mattel hoped for. Barbie sales do increase, but by 2017, it's clear that sales bump is nowhere near big enough to make up for losing the Disney princesses. Later that year, Hasbro replaces Mattel as America's biggest toy maker for the first time in more than 20 years. But as their 70-year conflict shows, it's never wise to count Mattel out. Mattel survived accounting scandals, the video game implosion of the 80s, and the toxic acquisition of the learning company. It's made comebacks before, and Hasbro knows it. But what their battle does show is that even in toys, the most faddish industry of all, strong brands endure so long as they adapt. With moves like Barbie's constant reinventions to Transformers movie-backed revival, Mattel and Hasbro have blown apart the old idea that toys are a here-today, gone-tomorrow business. Now, the only dead toys are those that failed to move with the times. And that, of course, means Hasbro and Mattel's next opportunity to get the jump on each other is always right around the corner. From Wondery, this is Episode 6 of Hasbro vs. Mattel for Business Wars. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. And to listen to episodes one week early, join Wondery Plus. You'll also find some links and offers from our sponsors in the episode notes. Supporting them helps us keep offering our shows for free. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. And tell us which business stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said at the time. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they are based on historical research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Kate Young is our associate producer. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Hey, I'm Mike Corey, the host of Wandery's show, Against the Odds. In our next season, I'm telling an amazing true story about American sailors who wrecked their ship off the coast of Africa in 1815. They're captured by a nomadic tribe. To escape, 
they will need to cross the largest hot desert in the world to reach civilization. They will battle against blistering heat, inhumane conditions, hunger, and thirst. Their heroic fight to get home will have a much greater impact than just on their own lives. It will influence a future president and change the course of American history in ways that are still felt today. This is the true story of the men who made it, and it's one that you don't want to miss. Subscribe to Against the Odds on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now.